Well, good morning, everybody. Take your Bibles, please, this morning. I'm going to go, first of all, to the book of Mark, and then we're going to go over for most of our time this morning to the book of Isaiah. Had a really good week this week. I don't know how your week went. Uh, it was My week was busy and, and seemed full on, and there was always something to do and some place to go, and I seemed to be running from one end of uh, Melbourne to the other. And on Tuesday morning, I was in chapel at... Uh, at Ridley, I'm going over there for one last subject. The theology prof from MST now works over there, so he's teaching that. And I went there, and we were standing in chapel on, on Tuesday morning, and there was 100, about 110 men in that room and a couple of lady students as well. And we were singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And halfway through, all the instruments just dropped out, and it was just all these guys singing. And it was, it was an amazing scene. It was an amazing moment. Amazing time of worship as a group of believers together from all different backgrounds and so on. But I have been thinking through the week about Mark 6 and how we could go there and just thinking about what the passage gives us. And I want to read it, Mark 6, verses 7 to 13. And I want us to look at this. And what, I, what occurred to me, what the Lord put on my heart was simply this. There is an incredible parallel, a similarity that's beautiful between Isaiah 6 and Mark 6. And singing that song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, that morning, the Lord just led me to stay in Isaiah 6 and show you kind of what Mark 6 is all about, but from the perspective of Isaiah. But let's read together. It says in verse 7 of Mark 6, He summoned the twelve. And began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever or wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And you say, what's the symbolism? What's the significance? What's the connection? They have heard Jesus' words. They have seen His miracles. They have watched Him as He raised a young girl from the dead. They have seen Him cast out lepers and cleanse the the lepers and cast out the demon-possessed. They've seen Him give sight to the blind. They've seen all the glory of the Lord for five long chapters of the book of Mark. They have been privileged to see all that God is doing. They've seen the glory of Jesus in those times. And having heard His voice and heard His summoning to call and follow them, follow Him, they've obeyed and followed Jesus. And now Jesus is sending them out to go and witness and preach to the nation around them. And what we have in the book of Isaiah, take your Bibles and flip over the book of Isaiah and chapter 6. And what we have is an amazing scene. Most of you will probably know the scene before we even read it together of Isaiah in the temple. And the incredible scene, the awe-inspiring scene he has of the glory of the living God rising up before his eyes. And he sees that scene. He hears and he he understands his own sin. At the end of that time there, Isaiah with, with lips that are now scarred and burned from the coal of the seraphim took and touched on his lips. He is now called and sent to go out and preach the gospel. If you ever want to know 
the, the, the struggle of ministry. You read Isaiah 6, verses 9 and on, and it talks about how go on preaching and they won't listen. Go on speaking and they won't hear. It's a sad story. But Isaiah has had this incredible vision of the holiness and the glory of the living God. One of the things that will come up again and again and again as Isaiah unpacks and unfolds the visions God gives him throughout all the book, what do we talk about? The Holy One of Israel. He'll say it over and over again. I think it's 33 times in the book of Isaiah he will mention the Holy One of Israel. That scene so profoundly affected his life. And we here this morning as Casey Bible Church, it's one of our goals is to see the glory of the Lord and to be transformed into the same image from one or from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit. What's that mean? As we see the glory of God, we are being changed by what we see, and we are being made more like Christ and sent out to fulfill the mission that God has given us. At the very end of our time this morning, I'm going to invite Laura up and she's going to come up and she's going to share a testimony of how she's been doing just that. We heard a couple years ago her testimony of how she came to know the Lord Jesus and she was saved and we baptized her. And now she's going to share just a little bit of what God is doing in her life to send her out to share the message of the gospel. What's the point? Every one of us is surrounded by people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and need to hear the message of the gospel. It isn't some great evangelist that God is raising up. He's raising up ordinary people like you and me to go and tell those around us that Jesus loved them and died for them, to tell them of the glory of the living God. Well, let's read together. And I'll give you an outline. You've got your little note sheets. They're on the chairs scattered around. And you can either make notes or keep score with those. Let's read together Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. It says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah speaks in verse 5, and he says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? To give the context a little bit, you see there, he says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, this great king of Israel, the one who at a very young age went out and he conquered peoples and he built cities and he built machines of war. He was greatly used of God for much of his life and much of his career. And then in one terrible moment, Uzziah goes into the temple of the living God. He takes up a censer. He fills it with incense. And he's going to go up and he's going to offer incense before the living God. That is a role strictly reserved for the priest of the living God. And he goes to do it. And the priests come rushing in after him. And they say, stop. 
It is not for you, Uzziah, to offer incense before the living God. And he turns out and there is a rage in him as he reaches out his hand toward those priests. The Lord turns his hand to leprosy and leprosy breaks out over his entire body. And the Bible says the priests rushed at him and they all grabbed him who is now completely and totally unclean and defiled and they rush him out of the temple. And they put him in a house by himself. And this great king of Israel, for the rest of his days, he carries this assignment at the end of his name. He is a leper. Cut off. And the year that he dies, there's some speculation that Isaiah is in fact a cousin of the king. And he has some ability, some freedom to go into the temple of the Lord God. And he walks in there and he's standing there. And you can almost sense his frustration and his grief as this great king who started off so well has now died. And his world seems to be just kind of falling apart. Everything's coming apart at the seams. And listen this morning, if you're here... And it feels like your world is falling apart. It feels like things just don't seem to be going your way. And everything is collapsing around you. Listen to me this morning. Put everything else aside if you can. Turn off your phone if you've got one. Turn off the world outside. I want you just to take a time this morning to lift up your eyes like Isaiah. And I want you to behold the glory of the risen, rising King. And we'll talk about that in a second. I want you to see the glory of the Lord. I want you to focus and feast your eyes on that because when you realize that the King and the Lord that we serve is exalted, He's enthroned, He's glorious, He's sovereign, He's absolutely holy beyond anything else that you and I can imagine, it puts everything else into perspective. God has not lost the plot. Things haven't gone pear-shaped in the throne room of heaven. And one of the things Isaiah is called on to do is to see that God is exalted. The King is on His throne. Everything is just fine in the courts of heaven. And even though it seems like your world is falling apart, let me assure you that God has everything under control. He knows exactly what He's doing. And we'll talk more about that towards the end. Let's, let's take a look there. I want to give you three things in your outline there. A great vision, a great transformation, and last of all, a great commission. And we got, we're going to do this morning. We'll look at the first two, a great vision and a great transformation. Isaiah is atoned, his sin is taken care of. And we're going to pause at that moment. We're going to take the elements of communion and we're going to remember the Lord. And I want, to use, want you to use this time between now and then to kind of feed your soul and, and feed your mind. Allow your mind to worship this morning, your heart to worship the living God as we consider who He is in this text. And then we'll take the bread and the wine together and we will remember our God who was willing that His Son should suffer and die to make us clean. So first of all, a great vision. We'll probably spend a good chunk of our time here. A great vision. I'll get a bunch of little blanks to fill in there. The first one is this. He is the enthroned King. Look what He says in verse number 1. In the year King Uzziah's year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Our God is the King who is enthroned. There's no beginning to His reign, and there will be no end to His reign. We watched, some of you watched in 1952, I think it was, as Queen Elizabeth ascended to the throne. Some of you may remember, or probably not anybody alive here, I guess, when uh, the one before her father, what's his name, David, Prince Albert, something like that, 
Nope, got it wrong. Never mind. You remember the king before, King George? He stepped down. He abdicated his throne. He walked away from his responsibilities. But you know, our God is the king who is enthroned. He will never step down. He never had to rise up to it. He has always been on his throne. There is no fault and no flaw to his reign. There's no weakness to his reign. There is no grounds for his impeachment. I was listening to a man yesterday. Uh, his name is Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. He's a, a black... <laughs> He's an African-American preacher, and he was preaching on, we'll talk about a bit of his sermon a little bit later. And he was talking about how he, was, he knew Nixon. He went to the White House, and he actually had to, the prayer breakfast was Nixon. And he was so proud to tell everybody how he had gone to the White House to have the prayer breakfast with President Nixon. And just a short time after that, all the impeachment hearings came up, and all the evidence and all the stuff about Nixon, how he finally quit his job. There is no grounds whatsoever for our God to be impeached and put out of His office. He is the enthroned King. No matter who sits in Canberra, or Washington, or Ontario, or London, or Europe, or wherever it is the heads of power in this world are, our King is the one who is enthroned in glory. None can pull Him down, and none has put Him there. None can take Him off. Remember the story of uh, Napoleon. Napoleon is going to be crowned king over all of France. And he steps forward and the archbishop comes forward with a great big crown. And Napoleon turns around and he steps forward and he grabs the crown out of the archbishop's hand. This is true. And he put it on his own head. He said, if, no, if I put it on, no man can take it off me. Well, the British proved him wrong. They took it off him in a big way. But listen, no one crowned our God king. He is king. He will always be king. There is no end, no beginning to his reign. He is the enthroned king of kings. Whatever this world throws at us, whatever happens, whatever comes along to shake our confidence in this world, we can be absolutely confident that our king is the enthroned one. Notice, secondly, he is the exalted king. Now, you got two words there. In my Bible, it's lofty and exalted. In the Hebrew, they actually mean very similar things with a slight distinction. One means he is rising as king. Like I say, please rise to stand or rise to sing or please rise up in your seats, whatever it is. We, it's emotion. It's an action of lifting or raising ourselves up. The other one, exalted, means that he is high. You see, how does it work that God is both rising and high at the same time? And it's basically perspective. We look at our God, first of all, we say He is lofty. He's rising up. Which means what? Which means that His throne is secure. His throne is high above everything else there is. None is higher, but He is rising. He's spreading His sovereignty out over all of the nations of the earth as more and more and more people respond to the gospel and submit to Jesus Christ. Listen, His sovereignty is rising, like expanding. The more I focus, the more you and I stop and focus on the living God and see His glory, it expands in our vision. I believe one of the biggest problems that faces our world, yours and mine in this church, is our vision of God is just a tiny bit too small. Actually, it's massively too small. We need a bigger view of God. And Isaiah said he's lofty and exalted. The view of him is increasing and spreading. And the more you stop and contemplate the living God, the greater your view of him will be. And you know what? You can go as far as you want for all the realms of eternity and you will not see the end. 
of the omnipotent, unlimited God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's gotten to be uncool to have superlatives and extremes and absolutes. And my answer is stop that. I want to talk about God in extremes. I want to talk about God in superlatives. I want us to think about God as so big that we cannot comprehend Him. Our problem is our vision of God is too small. He is the exalted King. He is also the high King. There is no higher throne. There is no higher judge. There is no higher King than the King of Kings. There is none whom we can appeal to to a higher level. You watch these cases go through the court systems and and it gets ruled at one level. And so the lawyer appeals to a higher court and they rule that level. And the lawyer appeals to a higher court. Listen, there is no higher court of appeal than the court of the living God. You're sitting here this morning, I'm calling on you to put everything else aside and allow your heart and your mind and your thoughts to focus and feast on Him. He's lofty and He's exalted. He is also, thirdly, the Sovereign Lord. The Bible says in two places, verse number uh, 3 and in verse, the end of verse 5, the Lord of hosts. You say, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the Lord of hosts? It means that He is the Sovereign God over all the hosts that we can think of. Like what, for example? Well, how about the angelic hosts? There's myriads of legions of angels in the creation of God. And God is sovereign over all the hosts of all the angelic realm. The demonic realm. Did you know that? God is sovereign over all the demonic realm. Meaning what? Meaning that they are all chained and He has every single one of them held by the leash. And He is stopping them from going any further than His design for them. He holds the leash. He's sovereign over them all. All the hosts of men, believers and unbelievers, God is sovereign over them all. We who have come to Christ, we have bowed the knee. We have spoken and said that Jesus is Lord over us. And we have responded in faith and obedience to the living God. He's sovereign over us. Guess what else? He's sovereign over every unbeliever out there. Why is it that we pray and plead with God to save men, to save the souls of men? Because God is sovereign over them. God holds their life in the palm of His hand. Listen, you're worrying about living and dying. We're talking about this just a minute ago before the service started. Your life is exactly held in God's hands. You will not die one moment too soon and not one moment too late. You can trust the living God. He's sovereign. He has it all under control. Now I want to get to the best one of all. He is also the Lord, the beautiful, holy God. He says there in verse number 3, I want to read it again. The seraphim are there and they got two wings over their faces and two over their feet and with two they're flying or hovering on either side of this great billowing train of the Lord of hosts and they cry out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The idea behind that is they never stop saying it. They keep saying it over and over again. And those cries of Kadesh, 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 that's what the Hebrew word is, echoes through heaven's courts back and forth and back and forth. And they're so overawed by the holiness of the living God who is in their presence that they cannot help themselves but to keep crying it out. Listen. And they're calling out, look, He's holy. And the holiness of God. Listen, yesterday afternoon, sitting in my study after I got back from doing some stuff around here, I was writing out and my heart just began to soar. 
And it's my prayer for all of you sitting here this morning, all of us, that our hearts would burn and soar within us as we stop and contemplate the beautiful holiness of God. Do you think you see the beauty in a, in a glorious rose? It's beautiful, no doubt about it. You see a beautiful diamond ring that's been cut flawlessly and the light sparkles and shines off it and it's beautiful, but they are crusty, ugly mud on the street compared to the beauty of the Lord of hosts in His holiness. It's the cry of the seraph from one to another. You know they don't cry? They could have cried, powerful, powerful, powerful. That would have fit. He's powerful, absolutely. They could have cried out, merciful, merciful, merciful. Would have been right. They could have called out gracious. They could have called out all kinds of things about the attributes of God. Unchangeable, unchangeable, unchanging. They could have said it, but they didn't. They could have cried out just, just, just to one another. But no. They stand there as their faces are covered. I think what it is... The sight of God's purity is so amazing, so dazzling to the seraphim that they can't even bear to look on it. So they pull their wings across their face and they simply shout out from beneath their wings, holy, holy, holy. The beauty of the purity of God. It is the beauty of all His other attributes. As omnipotence of God is the strength of His arms and His hands. As the omniscience of God is the working of His mind and wisdom. As eternality of God is the endurance, the durability of His person. So God's holiness is the beauty of His face. And just think about the the stark contrast, the extremes that you can think of. What does the Bible say about Jesus? He had no beauty or comeliness that we should desire Him. Why? Because His face in those moments on the cross was transformed as He took up all that sin of us on Himself and it became a horror show of ugliness. And yet the angels cover their faces and they say He's so holy. The beauty of His holiness is so great we can't even look on it. Holiness is God's devotion to His own glory. It's the beauty of all His attributes. If God is not holy, His justice becomes cruelty. If God is not holy, His mercy becomes foolish pity. If God is not holy, and His sovereignty becomes tyranny of the worst kind. Far beyond Hitler. But God is absolutely holy. God is passionate for the glory of His goodness. I said to you once before, I've heard it from Paul Wash, I'll say it again. Our greatest problem is that God is so good. You say, what's the problem with that? We're not. We are not so good. And the goodness of God is so overwhelming, so all-encompassing, that it does not draw us to Him. It drives us away from Him. You know the stories you hear in the news? Little boy dies, goes to heaven, sees a big light, goes towards the light. Do you know why I doubt those stories? Because if... Somebody for real died and went up to heaven and they saw the glory of the purity of the holiness of God. In their sin, they would not run towards it. They would scream and run away. You don't believe me? Remember the book of Genesis? There's the man, the woman, and they've eaten the fruit. They have sinned against God and they have taken. Now their eyes are open. They look at each other. Oh, you're naked. I'm naked. Oh, no. And shame rises up. 
And they stop and they, and they run around. They get leaves. They try and frantically cover themselves up somehow. And they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the idea of the Hebrew is he is enraged and rushing back and forth like a violent wind in the trees. And what do they do? I was afraid because I naked and so I hid. They got as far away as they could. And we think about grace a few minutes ago. And God in His amazing grace, He doesn't come to them because He knows in the absolute glory of His holiness, His perfection will strike out against them and they will be immediately judged and condemned. God speaks from a distance. Where are you? That's grace. Remember the story of, of, of Peter. He's in the boat. He's been fishing all night long. And he's washing his nets on the shore. And Jesus comes walking down the beach. And he stands on the beach. And he's preaching away to the people. He looks around at Peter. And he gets in his boat. Let's go out in the deep for a catch. And Peter's like, oh, come on, Lord. We've, we've fished all night. I've just got all the nets cleaned. Everything's ready to go for the next night. We haven't caught a thing. It's the heat of the day. The fish have all gone deep. What do you mean, let's go out for a catch? Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And he says, one net. And just, okay. And they roll out. And he throws the nets over the side. And the nets go down. And God in His omnipotent power draws all the fish of the sea up into the net. And Peter starts, he starts to pull up the nets. And all of a sudden, the strain is so great. And the net is starting to break. And Peter turns around and he looks at Jesus. And in that moment, his eyes are open. And he realizes that the holy God of Israel is sitting in the boat with him, staring back at him. And what does Peter say? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The holiness of God is so pure, so beautiful, so glorious. It does not draw us to Him. It drives us away from Him. In fact, what does Isaiah say? Our second point there, the great atonement. What's he do? How does he respond? I don't think he was still standing there. I, I just I, I can't get my head around this. I don't think he was standing there just looking up like this. I think he was on the ground in a fetal position with his hands over his head and he was just cringing at this sight. And Peter... Isaiah responds, Woe is me, for I am ruined. You ever ruined something completely? My dad, when I was a kid, gave me this radio to, to take apart. It wasn't working. He said, why don't you take it apart and see if you can figure out how to fix it? So I got a pair of cutters, and I pulled the thing apart, and all the wires are kind of holding things together. So I just took the cutters and crunch, 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 crunch. Cut all the wires apart, right? And the whole thing fell into two pieces. And all these wires, and they all got like three different colors, and there's about 500 wires, and there's no way you can figure out how to... And it, it was ruined. Useless. It's like the lady walking down the street in a wedding dress. And a truck buys by, and there's a great big black gooey puddle of oily black water. And as the truck hits it, this great wall of water comes across, and it hits that beautiful white dress. And no matter how much you scrub that dress... You'll never get it out. It's ruined. My friend Dave and I were going for lunch. Whenever you hear about Dave, my friend in Canada, it's not a good story. Uh, my friend Dave and I were going for lunch, and we were driving down this road, and we went into this parking lot, and there was this great big pool of water. It's like about this deep, you know, about maybe 10, 15 feet wide. And there's this little boy walking along, and he, and he was this little tiny guy, maybe the size of Bethany. And he had this little suit on, you know, beautiful little suit. And Dave was looking for parts. He didn't notice the puddle. And he hit the puddle about 
probably 40 kilometers an hour, and this great wave of water rose up in front of the car, and I'm in the passenger seat, which is like our driver's seat, just watching. <gasps> this little kid stand there, and you see the mom kind of looking, and her face just went like, and this wall of water just went over, and it hit the kid, and just... As we drove by, we kind of looked back, and Dave, we're not hungry anymore. We just kept driving right out of the parking lot and kept going. That poor little guy, was his suit was ruined. It was destroyed. You couldn't fix it. That mud on the wedding dress, you can't fix that. That radio cut apart, it's ruined, it's destroyed. And listen, here's the point. Isaiah stands there and confronted with the glory of the purity of the holiness of the living God, he realizes that the sin within him has absolutely ruined him. And curled up on the ground like I believe he was, he cried out, Woe is me! Alas, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Listen, people. Sin is more than an annoyance. It's more than a hindrance to us. It's more than what gets in our way and tears apart our friendships and makes our life difficult. It massively and radically undoes us. The old King James says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Everything has come apart, the seams. My whole life is a waste. Woe is me for sin, for I am unclean. You notice the striking contrast between Isaiah's confession and the glory and the purity of the holiness of God. I'm unclean. Like a leper who walked out in the middle of the street with his hand over his mouth and he shouted out with a bell, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. What's God going to do? What are we going to do? We can't do anything. Notice what the story says. He says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Outside the doorway of this great big temple room he's in, there's the great bronze altar. I don't know if you saw this in the news the other day. Uh, Israel, they have rebuilt and pre... uh, How do you put it? Pre-assembled or built a prefabricated altar to be established when the temple is finished. There's now talks between Turkey and Israel to rebuild the third temple. And they've got this great altar all prefabricated, ready to go. It's 16 and a half feet high, 52 feet long and 52 feet wide. It would, it's probably over twice the size of this room and higher than this ceiling. And the angel goes out with his, with his tongs to the altar out there and he puts out the tongs and on that altar is always a burning sacrifice. I just finished reading through Leviticus a couple days ago and reading about all those different sacrifices and realizing that all of them speak of something that Christ has done. The sin offering that Christ gave Himself as the offering, the payment for my sin. The peace offering, the offering of Christ for us to make peace with us for God. The fellowship offering, the relationship that has been restored between God and us all because of the sacrifices that were made on our behalf. And the angel goes out, the seraphim goes out and takes the coal, the burning coal that tells you about the fire of God's wrath that has risen up and consumed that offering. And he flies back towards Isaiah. Everybody here ever burned themselves really badly? Yeah, a couple of you. Yeah, you have, I know. Uh, this coal. You ever burn your lips? I got this, this bad habit. I like to make uh, fried eggs in a sandwich maker. And you put a fork on the sandwich maker and close it so it doesn't, you know, smother the eggs. And twice now, because I'm a little dense, I have taken the, the fork and I've grabbed the egg and put the fork in my mouth. 
And the one time I hit it, it hit my lip, and I actually heard that as it hit my lip, and it sizzled. Oh, you're all laughing like it's funny. I don't want to lighten the moment too much, but listen. The coal of that fire blazing at, what, 1,200, something like that degrees? And the angel flies up to Isaiah, and he reaches out, and he touches his mouth. That isn't figurative. I'm convinced it's a literal thing. And the burning hot coal, which would have scorched the skin around his face, touches his lips. And these lips, which of yours, which were designed for kissing and smiling, and, and they're, they're very sensitive. You can taste, you can feel things. A few of you are licking your lips as I'm talking. And that burning coal would have seared the lips. What does it tell us? It tells us about the work of Christ who is consumed in the judgment of God applied to us. Jesus Christ suffered on a cross and the benefit of His death has to be applied to every single one of us. The burning coal has to be taken from the altar and applied to Matt's lips and mine and Karen's and Andrew's and Heather's. Whoever's there, it has to be applied. And He takes that symbol, that picture of Christ who will one day suffer on a cross and He applies it to the lips of Isaiah. And He says, look, listen. Behold, this has touched your lips. The benefit of that sacrifice has been applied to you. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And the only thought that goes through my mind is grace. That's grace, isn't it? We stop and think about the holiness of God and what we deserve is to be cast into the furthest fires of hell. And God in grace worked it out that we might have the benefit of an innocent victim applied to us. I bet you every time Isaiah opened his mouth to preach the gospel, the scars on his lips and mouth would have given a little bit of difficulty to speak. No longer would the skin have been flexible, but every time he opened his mouth to speak, the mark of the sacrifice was on his lips and came through his voice. It would have profoundly changed him. We've come here this morning for a number of reasons. One of them is to remember the Lord again. To stop and remember the fact that our God, our living Savior, who came from heaven to this earth, endured the full weight of the wrath of God against sin. He endured not just the fiery coal in His lips, He endured the full heat of God's wrath for those hours on the cross that we might be made right that we might be restored, that we might be able to, like Isaiah, stop and lift up our eyes and see again the Lord of hosts, the King who is enthroned. I want to read something to you. This is um, Some of you may have heard this. You can get on the internet, on YouTube and so on. Reverend Shadrach Meshach Lockridge, and he preached an hour-long sermon. I listened to the whole thing yesterday, late in the day. And um, this is what he says about the King. You may have heard this. It's called this, this is my king or that's my king. I wish I could do it like he does. I wish I could write like this. Listen. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? 
You're sitting here week after week after week. Let me ask you the question. Do you know the God that we are talking about? He's the greatest phenomenon that, this, that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's Son. He's the sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one. Listen. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. Is that ever not our Savior, the Lord Jesus? There's no other. You could search the furthest cots and the ends of the earth to find one other man, one other person that could be qualified to be our Savior. He is the only one. He supplies strength for the weak. Are you weak? Look to Jesus and you will see strength and you will find strength. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and He saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and He guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. Praise God that God forgives sinners. I was listening a few weeks ago to Piper and he was saying, you want to get around bitterness and struggle with those who have once hurt you, stop and take some time to consider the greatness of how much God has forgiven you for. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He rewards or regards the age, sorry. He rewards the diligent and He beautifies the meek. Isn't that a beautiful thing about our Savior? He stops and takes the meek and the lowly and He makes them beautiful in holiness. God is working in your life wherever you're at to make you holy. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know Him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. That's His holiness. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And His burden is light. And He says, I wish I could describe Him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hand. You can't outlive him, and you cannot live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stop him, but they, sorry, couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Yeah, that's my king. Is that your king? How big is your vision of God this morning? Before we go on in a few minutes to talk about here I am or here am I, send me. I believe with all my heart that we as a church need to stop and turn our eyes full on the Savior and get a fresh, big vision of God. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give you some time to stop and consider the Savior this morning. And then we're going to break bread and we'll take the elements and so on. Loving Father, we come before You and we give You thanks again. 
And Father, how much we would like to be in the courts of the temple. And like Isaiah, to stop and look up and see. And yet, O oh God, I believe that for most of us, we would immediately turn and fall to the ground and curl up in a ball, pleading for You to depart. Father, we thank You. We praise You. We lift up our hearts to You in worship that Jesus came down from the heights of glory. He who was so holy and so pure that the seraphim couldn't even bear to look upon His face. And He took upon Himself all the sin of this world. He took upon Himself my sin. Oh God, as I stop and consider my own life, and each of, us, each of us considers our lives before You. We realize again, oh God, how much we have been forgiven for. Father, we rejoice that our Savior was the sin offering for us. We rejoice, O oh God, that He is the peace offering. He is the fellowship offering. He is the grain offering. All those things, Father, that sketch out and illustrate and show us how much we have in Christ. Father, we thank You for such a Savior and such a sacrifice. And Father, as in a moment we will consider the Great Commission, Father, help us to fill our minds and our eyes and our souls with a vision of the beautiful, gloriness, glorious holiness of God. Father, thank You. When the hour had come, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord together, shall we? In the same way, he took the cup after that eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink and remember the Lord's death, shall we? The work of God in us is a work to change us and transform us. As you stand there and look back at those, the text before us in Isaiah 6, and the angel speaks, the seraphim speaks to Isaiah, he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Look what he says. It's changed him. Radically different. And I can imagine that moment as he stands there and he's watching what's happening and the seraphim flies away and he stands back up. There is a joy that begins to fill his heart to realize and know inside his own person he would have understood and realized that he has been cleansed. That thing which undid him, which ruined him, has been removed and taken away. His iniquity, his failure to meet God's standard. That's what iniquity means. A failure to meet God's standard has been taken away. Now he meets what God requires. His sin has forgiven. 
Listen, we believe that God's love is a transforming, changing love. I heard someone describe the other day love as acceptance of me as I am. And you know what I think? That's not what God's love is. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Why does He say all that? His love is expressed as something that, that enacted to change us and make us clean, to take from us a perishing eternal hell and make us acceptable in God's sight by making us clean and pure. Now, I want you to notice something else here. It didn't occur to me until just late last night. I was thinking about this, and I suddenly realized that in the whole scene, that it's not the voice of God that speaks until the very end. It's the voice of the seraphim crying out, holy, 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 and so on. And then in verse number 8, he says, then I heard the voice of the Lord speaking. And everything is different. Now God has a relationship with Isaiah. Now there's restoration there. Now there's reconciliation. And God calls him and says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I want you to notice it's also a sovereign calling. He's calling for volunteers. He's saying, who's going to go out and share the gospel, to share the news, to preach the gospel to this people that will not listen and will not turn? And I can imagine Isaiah as he stands up And his heart is just filled with joy at knowing what God has done for him. He lifts up and he opens his mouth and the lips are still burned and scorched. Maybe his voice wasn't very loud, but he says, here am I, send me. And the call for us this morning as we are here as Casey Bible Church, it's not our calling to come to church week after week after week after week having this as our Christianity, this little group here. It's our call to go to all the reaches of the world and tell them that Jesus loved them. Point is, it's not about being Billy Graham. It's not about being some great preacher or a bad preacher. It's about being who you are, which is what God has changed you into, where you are. It's about taking the message of the gospel and sharing it in terminology and phrases that they understand. If you get up and start talking about justification, sanctification, and propitiation, you're probably not going to get very far. But talking about the fact that you are a horrible sinner, but God is a great Savior. Talking about the fact that Jesus died for you on a cross to make you clean, to make you new. They can understand that. The question becomes... Like I said before, Isaiah stood beholding the glory of the Lord and said, as a forgiven sinner forever marked on his lips with the scar of that coal. One thing that struck me as I thought about that was that every one of us is marked and scarred by something, someone, the Spirit of the living God that is in us, that brands us like that coal that branded his lips and marks us as different. The question is, are we going to go out and step out and share with the neighbor, share with the friend, share with the co-worker the simple truth of the love of God for sinners slain?